Welcome to Double Impact, the podcast where we double back on the movies that impacted us growing up as 90s kids and decide, do they hold up today or are they best left in the past? I'm Tristan. And I'm also Greg. <laughs> I tried a different take there. It would be real serious. We are, we are serious. It's a serious. Very considered. It's a serious time of the world's history. <laughs> How many beers did you have? Four. Uh, I've had zero. I had a coffee. Oh, we'll see how we go. <laughs> yeah. I'll try not to annoy you or you, We're almost of the show. like two opposite style podcasters coming together. An ill-fitting duo that somehow yeah. gets it done. I've kind of got a mullet. I'm kind of too old for this shit. You're more Mel Gibson. I'm probably more rigged, let's be yeah. honest. <laughs> well, I'm sort of retired. Sem- yeah, semi-retired. <laughs> Unemployed. Do you have a morning bath? <laughs> no, my whole family visits me. Can we, can we save that? I want to come back to that. Okay. That's one of my pillars of content for this episode. <laughs> okay. We're talking, of course, about Lethal Weapon. Lethal Weapon, the foist. The foist of a few, quite a few. Mm, franchise. Mm, yeah. yeah. This, this was all the way back in 1987. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One year, one year BE. Pre-Expo. That's right. Yeah. Sure One was. year before Expo 88. Before Expo, yeah. The Dark Ages. Yeah. it's We did 97 last week. Yeah. So we're 10 years earlier. It's true. Mathematics mm. is... Subtract 10. Well, how much, how much mathematics can we expect in this episode? Minimal. Okay. That's the extent of it? I hope so. Can you contextualise that I year for us, Craig? I contextualise that year. A little member buried that is not restricted to 87, yet mm. it's where the, the, the trend peaked. Oh. It's when the height of this way of life, okay, this product, uh-huh. this genus de quoi, do you know what I'm talking about? No. Good. Look, <laughs> I'm talking about the humble, sexy waterbed. Oh, yeah. Okay. The 1987 12-month time frame mm. was the height of the popularity for the for the waterbed. Right. Um, a whopping 22% of all... Mattress sales in that period in the US were wow. water beds. That's insane. It's like one in five beds. It was the cool thing. My friend had one. Jono. <laughs> Jono had, had a water bed at his mum's house. So it was like I'd heard about it. Yeah. Oh wow. It's like having a for. It's like having a cool car. Isn't it? The bed was kind of all you had at that point. The closest I ever had to water. I never had a water bed. Yeah. You know, you'd go down to people's houses and like the parents would have one. And maybe yeah. if there was like a rich kid, he'd have one. And the, the fact that it was cool and then not cool, did people enjoy it or not? Because it's I didn't, comfort is not a shouldn't be a trend. Well, it didn't. It's a great point. I think from what I've read, there yeah. wasn't really a point where that people went, "Oh, they're not good for you." Actually, there's yeah. no. There's, I don't think they're bad for you. Yeah, I think they went out of trend for a number of reasons. I'll talk. I'll give a little spiel. Okay. On the on the kind of origin story of the okay <laughs> origin story of the waterbed. <laughs> um, so story goes um, well, mixed reports really, but they they go way back. They go way back. There's talk of uh, some early Persians, perhaps the prince of Persia. Yeah, maybe um, first facilitated it, but they would wrap uh, you know wrap some cow skins in some. Some water. Some water. It kind of makes sense, like technology-wise. It does. Wise, does. It's, it's, it's all there. 
You've got it. It's They're natural resources. Yeah. Um, the early 1800s, there was a Scottish physician, Dr. Neil Arnott, no relation to the biscuit people, mm. devised a water bed, a water-filled bed to present bed sores. Um, there was a guy in London that sort of worked on something for a similar purpose. Um, I guess the modern version that we know of uh, came about in 1968. Yeah, Phil's 60s. Uh, Charles Hall, his name was, he presented a waterbed as his master's thesis to San Francisco State University design class and it was very popular with the class. He tried something with a chair and some cornstarch that didn't work out. Um, what? Yeah, what? exploded or something. He, he, was in, he liked the idea of furniture something, filled with something. Something. Wow. Correct. What else could you do? I think he had jello. Ball bearing stool. A lot of people died. <laughs> In the making of? <laughs> yeah. Gunpowder shoehorn. <laughs> <laughs> that was me putting on my shoe. Yeah. So this guy's, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're riffing with this guy. Yeah, you, I'd you get would, along. I think you and Charles would have gone got on just fine. A good old fashioned brainstorm. So well, this guy got moving with this. He had a, a waterbed mattress called the Pleasure Pit. It gained a lot of popularity in the hippies' culture. So, yeah, there was a lot of free love and, well, love associated with the whole waterbed movement. Yeah. Time magazine in 1971 had an expose, not an expose, had a feature on on waterbeds, uh, Playboy Tycoon, Hugh Hefner had one, a king-size one. Of course he did. Picture of a giant possum or something on it. Probably circular, rotated or something. Oh, vibrating, the whole shebang. So it it did have that angle on it. Which would have dated. I tried to find a bunch of ads. I don't know if you Seymour, stop hitting the microphone. We've got a uh, we've got a third potter today. Seymour, he's been chill. It's been, it's been quite chill. chill, which is good. But he was just licking the microphone, which is not very COVID safe. Yeah, it's, well, I don't think do dogs get the COVID. I don't know. So you know, so I got these. We got the uh, ads there for the for the water beds. Now they were mostly quite retail ads. But before the retail ads, which we'll play in a moment, there was some good branding, you know, some sort of more high-level communications about the benefits of a of a waterbed before they stooped to price point advertising. Right. So this was the most popular slogan that I found was, two things are better on a waterbed. One of them is sleep. <laughs> that was sort of like the tagline of the Ooh, OG. Nah. Yeah, yeah. They're talking about sex. Oh. I would... Question the the rhythm capabilities of such a loose bass. That's where the saying it's not it's the motion motion of the ocean. That, uh, Is that what they mean by that? Probably not. I, I don't know. I'm not sure that that would be true with a waterbed. Yeah, It'd be kind of fun, but I don't know about the physics of it. it almost, almost certainly wouldn't be true. Seymour's farted. He'll do that. Uh, I've got another one. Okay, she'll admire you for your car. She'll respect you for your position. She'll love you for your waterbed. She'll love you for your waterbed. Yeah. Seymour's definitely cut one. Um, so these are the ads. Hi, I'm Ed at the Bed Incorporated. We're more than just a furniture store. We offer something that's priceless, a good night's sleep. If you're looking for a complete water bed for $129, we've got it. I but am. if it's a complete bedroom suit you need, we've got dozens. And right now, all of our suits are a full 20% Ed with off. The bed. Discover Ed with a the good bed. night's sleep at the Bed Incorporated, Huntsville and Florence. That was quite good. Yeah, they um, they, they mostly had center around a, a white male telling you about the benefits or the price, I should say, of, mm. of many waterbeds for sale. There are many, many. Come on down. Come on down. 
you know, they've got flotation tanks these days, sensory deprivation tanks. Uh-huh. So maybe they'll come back. It's interesting. Maybe that's yeah. what I should do with my life. Build a waterbed? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's it seems like they went out of fashion, not out of whatever the medical version of that is. You know, it's interesting. The only downside I can think of for a waterbed is if Freddy Krueger trapped you inside one, which I believe happened in 1987. Oh. In Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. I'm pretty sure it's in the third one. Yeah, I can't remember. I watched it recently. Did you? Yeah, after we did Freddy, I watched the third one and the final oh, one. Oh, yeah. Because I, I think that you, worked as a trilogy. I remember you were yeah. going to do that. So it was one of them. I think it must be the third one. Um, so maybe like correlation, causation. Freddy, mm. Yes, well, maybe he really put the old waterbed to bed. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> that was a you wrapped it up well. Big year for waterbeds. Big year for movies too. Yeah, massive year for movies. Beverly Hills Cop mm, Two, Fatal yeah. Attraction, Dirty Dancing, Three Men and a Baby, which we've covered before. Good Morning mm-hmm. Vietnam, Predator, like we said, The Untouchables, Moonstruck, Spaceballs, Wall Street, The Lost Boys, Full Metal Jacket. Wow. But do you know what came in at number seven? Lethal Weapon. So it came out in March of 1987, despite being set at Christmas time. Budget of $15 million. Gross of $120.2 million. Run Tomatoes, critic score of 81%, audience score of 86 Oh, yeah. Yeah, healthy, strong. Yeah. Strong. 80 plus is. I think that's consensus. I think that's a, a unanimous verdict right there. Yeah. But was this a big one for little Greg? Um, yes. Yeah? Yes, and I will elaborate. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was. The the Lethal Weapons, the, the, the yeah. franchise that is, has, has been a pretty important set of films for me over the years. Yeah. Number one, I don't recall the first time I saw it. I feel like maybe... Mum and Dad had it on rental and yeah. we like snuck out of bed and tried to hide behind the couch. <laughs> it's like a Saturday night. They'd get like a kid's movie. they get two movies. they get the kid's movie. Yeah, that's Which right. would be like Dinosaur. What was that Dinosaur movie that came out? Land Before Time. Land Before Time. I feel like we got the Land Before Time and they got Lethal Weapon. Yeah. And had Sneak Out and, and then watch it. And then <laughs> I'd try and watch it the next day and be like, you can't watch that. And I go, well, I watched it last night anyway. <laughs> Fuck you, Mom. Yeah. Except that bit. Except that bit. Sorry, Susan. Sorry, Susan. Uh, it's okay. We've, we've established she's not listening. <laughs> she might be by accident. She might be by Greg, accident. Greg, how do I get your bloody podcast to stop oh, playing in the synced car? It. You've synced it to my car. <laughs> Why have you done that? I can't escape it. Yeah, but good on you. Proud of you. Um, <laughs> so that was kind of the memory I have. I think that's kind of maybe how I saw it the first time. I got some, you know, I remember a few things. Yeah. I remember being deeply in love with Murtaugh's daughter. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. And I remember being very confused by the alternate version of Happy Birthday that his family sings. Oh, I can't remember that. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. (laughs) Clapping. Interesting. I'm more open to it now. I'll get get into that in the rewatch. I've really become more open-minded. I'm more open-minded about (laughs) variations on classics. And what about you? Less so. 
Less so being more open-minded, you still like <laughs> Yeah, more narrow-minded. Yeah, good. No, I, I will. You know what you want. I reckon I'll get more narrow-minded as I get older. Why not? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but and Lethal Weapon wasn't massive for me at all. Yeah, right. I watched it. I remember it because I remember the daughter and I remember <laughs> the pool plastic oh, thing, course, which is yeah. like a waterbed disaster really. It's not dissimilar. Yeah, I remember that. That really stuck with me. It's like that's a fucked up situation. Mm. Imagine falling on the plastic on I, a pool when yeah. you just get shrink wrapped. Now that you mention it, I think that Ugh. troubled me as well. Yeah, and that's kind of all I remembered really. Um, but I, oh, no, that's not true. Uh, broadly speaking, yes, but I, I watched it a couple of years ago recently. So I had my – it was all topped up. So watching it, there wasn't any massive revelations really. Mm. But I've, I've always liked it. I don't know that I've seen them all. It just wasn't like it wasn't like a Beverly Hills Cop or something. That was one that was always, you know, followed me as I grew up kind mm. of thing. This one was like, oh yeah, I saw it and kind of might have been just slightly off in terms of the age or something when it landed with me. It's pretty, and my it's mother early. would probably never. Quite yeah, my mother early. would never hire this type of thing. So unless Jono had it, I wouldn't see it. Jono, Jono has been able to facilitate many a film. Though, <laughs> he, so has. he has. Like, like relying on him is not such a bad thing. Yeah, hundred percent. On you, Jono. <laughs> Should I get into the origin story? Yeah. Origin story. Thanks, Oki. Oh, right. So this is, this is an episode of firsts. Mm-hmm. It's our first Mel Gibson movie. It's our first Danny Glover movie, I think. It's our first Shane Black movie. Is it? Yeah, so this, yeah, I believe so. What did we do? I'm going to have to double check that because we forgot we did Batman last time. I feel like we did one since. We, well, he was in Predator. I know. We I haven't feel like released we've done something since Predator. Uh, maybe. Probably not. Well, it's his first movie, so let's go with that angle at the very least. Um, he wrote this pretty fresh out of college. Now, Shane Black, if you're not familiar, went on to make The Last Boy Scout, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, The Nice Guys, The Predator, which unfortunately kind of ruins that hot streak of good movies. But... um. This was the first one he wrote. No, technically this is the second one he wrote. How old is he at this point? 24. 24. In 1985. What were you doing at 24, Tristan? Probably more than me, to be fair. <laughs> we were both little young guns in agency land, in theory. Not writing movies. Not writing movies, that's for damn sure. Watching movies? Watching movies, not writing them. He was 24. He wanted to be an actor apparently, but he kind of ended up doing this. He, he was writing movies essentially. He wrote something called The Shadow Company initially, which Ooh. was a supernatural thing uh, which never got made. But they uh, called The Shadow Company in this somewhere, right? Yeah, yeah, that's the whole that's, that's the called. whole outfit. Yeah, they called that. The bad guys. Yeah, so that was a little Easter egg he carried with him from that. It's movie. a good name. It's a good name. That was probably the best thing about the script, <laughs> imagine, because it didn't get made. Mm, um, yeah. It was about Vietnam War though and like zombies and shit in the Vietnam War or something. That's interesting. Yeah, maybe it'll get made one day. But, yeah, he wrote this pretty fresh out of college, out of the old UCLA. Um, That's a good school, isn't it? It's a great school. And the the core of the idea was really to make an urban western, a bit like a Do- Doity Harry kind of deal, but set it more with ordinary cops First version of the script, he didn't love. He um, had quite a few different things going on. Apparently it was, dare I say, darker, grittier. Which is interesting because this is pretty dark and gritty, I would have said. 
Actually, what I read was the very, very, very first version of the script wasn't quite as dark. Then I think it got darker and then I think when and other people got involved, it got lightened back up a little oh, bit. Yeah, yeah. But in one version of one early version of the script, the movie ended in a car chase with a big truck full of cocaine. The truck explodes and it snows cocaine all over Hollywood Hills for Christmas. And does Christmas <laughs> music start playing? Pretty much. Like Jingle Bellsy. I'll be home for Christmas. That one plays in this one, doesn't it? At the end? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. That's one of my favourite ones to sing, obviously. Um, But he didn't love this version. He threw it in the trash. Oh, that's quite a... Yeah. I mean, assume he had a computer, so he had to print it out. Scrunch it up. Find it, scrunch it up, throw it in the trash. But then he rewrote it, shopped it around. Um, Obviously, as these things do, got rejected all over town until a Warner Brothers executive took notice Quite fond of it. Mm-hmm. Got his mate Joel Silver to take a look. Oh, yeah, I've heard of him. Yeah, Joel Silver. We've done quite a few Joel Silver movies, not the least of which being Die Hard, which immediately followed this, Predator, which is yet to be released, but um, somewhat of a lat pack action movie god. Mm-hmm. And this became a partnership that would echo through the ages. Laurenstein. <laughs> Um, because even lately they made nice guys together. So th- they became a bit yeah, of a... that was only a few years ago. Yeah, they kind of further refined the script together as well. Um, but as you'll hear in the Predator episode, it was because of this fresh honeymoon period of the relationship where he's like, hey, can you rewrite Predator for me? Come down and you can be in the movie kind of thing. Although he never rewrote it. He was just in the movie. Uh, but he sold... So ultimately there he sold the script for a quarter of a million dollars, which is not bad. That's... I mean, that he's 23. Higher. Yeah, like a lot of the movies we talk about, they, they're they sold for not much. 250 grand in yeah. the 23 in the 80s. That's massive. That's a lot of cocaine. Fill it with a truck, explode, and then yeah, it's snowing all over. Inject it or whatever you do with cocaine. He had a, he had a white Christmas that year yeah. once again. Um, hey, often we talk about precasties, but what about pre-directies? So this is one of those ones that started with the script and the producers versus like a director choosing the project. They initially wanted to give it to Leonard Nimoy, um, but he didn't want to do action movies and he went and made Three Men and a Baby instead that very same year. Um, so they offered it to Richard Donner, who I didn't know a lot about until earlier today. He's a real blind spot for me, but <laughs> he did The Omen. He did Superman. That's he did Superman 2. He did The Goonies. He did Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> yeah, he did. And Lethal Weapon 1. Yeah, it turns like- out. Just talk about his range for, I'm sure you'll probably might get into it, but just off the those titles alone. Yeah. The Omen, Superman and Goonies. That's I reckon The Omen's one of the scariest movies ever, personally. I haven't seen it since I was quite young and it's, it's scared like the Gregory shit out of me. Gregory Peck in it. That's the, the, the sheet of glass, the, the, high, the guy's head probably slices it's off. Probably. the kid, Damien. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's Omen, right? Yeah, I'm scared of kids generally. Well, probably that's maybe where it all traces back to. There's rock wheelers. It's, I'm scared of kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it all started. Wow. Have we just, has this been, th- it's a breakthrough. Have we had a breakthrough? I'll see you next week. It'll be $400. <laughs> wow. That's impressive. We just had a breakthrough. Mm. Now, Richard Donner wanted Mel Gibson. So there's no real interesting precasties here. Aside from, I was going to, I was going to read it because it was ridiculous. IMDb trivia, which I'm using less and less now because it just keeps losing credibility with me. It said, <laughs> There's one, actually it might still be a wide screen there, that said people that were initially considered for the cast and it's just got every, every the paragraph is like this long and it's got every famous person in the 80s in it. It's like, what are you, what are, what? What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? 
I wonder what the the, the real main Charlie Sheen consideration Rick set is for a lead role in Hollywood movie. Well, this one was pretty seamless because he just went, "I want Mel Gibson," and then the casting director said, "Oh, you should get um, the guy from the Color Purple, Danny Glover. He'd be great opposite him." Mm. And then they just did it. Well, then he, first he went, "But he's black." Yeah. Well, it's it's and pretty went, interesting. Oh, I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I had that when. Later in my notes is one of the things that's aged really well because I think that there's no like, oh, white guys do this, black guys, none of that stupid yeah, yeah. shit that was pretty common in the era. Yeah, why you drive like that? Yeah, yeah, oh, no, yeah. Save that for Russia. Never, yeah, exactly, like 10 years later. So yeah, it's, it's really interesting. We'll come back to that. But um, yeah, they were like, oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I guess he, yeah, why not? And then they flew uh, Mel Gibson from Sydney to Chicago and they did a read-through together and they're like, this is electric, baby. Mm. Let's make the movie. And they got Gary Busey also. Good. Yeah. He had to audition though because his Oscar glow was starting to dim. Yeah, I'd heard that. Mm. But he didn't seem crazy yet. He still seemed pretty pretty regular. Yeah. Relatively. Yeah. I mean, a different crazy in this role. But yeah. apparently, yeah, he, <clears throat> he wasn't the kind of guy they were looking for for this role. Right. Who do they want? Like a Probably someone. Action. No, probably someone a little bit more Mr. Joshua because – Boosie's quite animated, so he yeah he had a different different tilt for that. So he was then he wasn't the kind of guy they're looking for. Yeah, but he came in and auditioned, and you got the job. You got the part. So they they got these people together, drove them around LA, put up some Christmas Christmas decorations, yep. yada Shot yada yada, stuff. bish bash bosh. You got yourself a movie rap party at the Viper Room. That that would have been a good one. They probably did have a rap party at the Viper Room. I hope so. Most likely, I'll play the trailer. He's a criminal's worst nightmare. A cop who enjoys the danger. No guns, no jujitsu, just bring him down. They really want to jump. Well, then that's fine with me. Come on. Wait, what do you mean? Wait a minute. What the? He was ready to retire. Now he's going to wish he had. Gun! Oh, oh, oh. Raj, meet your new partner. New partner. If these guys can just stand each other. What you got in there? Boy and Smith? A lot of old timers carry those. The bad guys don't stand a chance. Don't kill anybody. Don't kill anybody. I'm too old for this. Are you as good as you say you are? Nobody can touch me. Suppose we better register you as a lethal weapon. You ever met anybody you didn't kill? Well, I haven't killed you yet. Now, I think that was, I think that was a uh, Don LaFontaine trailer. A version. Yeah, yeah, he, 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 you know, he did a, not a bad job of introducing yeah. in broad strokes, uh-huh. uh, but I'd love to hear your your recap of exactly what went down in this particular picture. Yeah, yeah, sure, mate. Yeah. Look, it's a fairly up and down, you know, plot, but I'll, yeah, you know, we're in familiar territory with this story. Yeah, uh, youngish, wild, youngish. We'll come back to that. Youngish, wild card, hotshot, gets paired with cranky old veteran, forced to get along to get it done. Two men, so different, yet so similar. You got Riggs. 
psychotic suicidal assassin. I think he's a homicide cop, but he's also doing drug busts. It doesn't really matter because it's cool and on edge. Loves doing a drug bust out in the open. Many. Put a bag of cocaine on the table in the middle of some Christmas trees. Yeah, and have a big old bump <laughs> yourself while you're there. Uh, then you got Murta. Roger Murta. A dedicated family man, ready to wind down his career, quite jaded. Mm. Both are army veterans. Yeah. From the same war. Yeah. Both displaying signs of being buggered. Yeah. In different ways. Both yeah. total badasses in different ways. Yeah. Both introduced to us naked in different ways. Oh, Ara genius. pointed that one out. Both have a an instrument that's played when they are on the screen. Oh. Murta, Murta, <laughs> Murtag, Murtoff. I don't know. Donaghy gets called by his old nan buddy. It's a missed call. Mm. Old nan buddy, Hunt Sacker. <laughs> That's a good name. Hunt. I was Hunt, Hunt Sacker. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it turns out his daughter's been murdered by the Shadow Company because he's been. Yeah, he's trying to stop. Oh, was he a nan mate? Yeah, they're nan totally buddies. That's a you owe me one. Something happened to Nam. Ah. You owed him one from Nam. Then they're, they're all vets. So, so it's the it's the it's the the golden thread through this film is yeah, they're yeah. all they're all old they're all war vets. Mm. So he's trying to stop importing the heroin. So they cap his daughter with some Drano in the bago. <laughs> um, so Riggs and Murder are trying to Murtoff. <laughs> it's not how it looks. Yeah, it's not. Uh, trying to get to the bottom of it. Things get very violent. The Shadow Company start firing up. They send in Mr. Joshua. He's pretty scary. And that's before you know he's actually Gary Boosie. Mm. Murtoff's daughter, I think, is dating him, coincidentally, in the background. Oh. Really? Yeah. I think I described, I think I just described my daughter's boyfriend. You missed that bit? Oh, yeah. There's a lot of plot subtleties that kind of, Pass by. It's interesting because in one of the, yeah, in one earlier version of the script too, there was a lot more like Nam flashback things. It's all now, it's Nam territory. Yeah. And I think the, oh, he owes him one. Mm. Apparently, Danny Glover's character in one of the earlier scripts accidentally killed someone. And he covered it or something. Maybe. I don't yeah. know that part, but it sounds like, oh, okay, I can see there's traces yeah, they of. Do, there's traits, they don't give it. Yeah. So the daughter's dating Mr. Joshua. He's pretty tough. He gives himself a smiley or his boss gives him a smiley. Remember when he used to put a lighter on your forearm? Yeah. He does one of those. So he's tough. You know that. Uh, it turns out these guys are pretty similar and they like each other. They save the day. There's lots of sequels. Good times ahead. Mm. Four stars. Four stars. Out of five. Out of five. Nice. Nice. It was a four-star film. It was a four-star film. An all-star, four-star. Yeah. How did you... Did you like it? I did. I enjoyed it. Oh, there's another movie we did recently, Indiana Jones it was. It's another one of those where it's like really loud. Yeah. That sounds stupid. But it's like the different type of loud, like the gunshots are like. Yeah. <laughs> so like I'm always turning it up and turning it down. Yeah. <laughs> it's one of those. Mate, try that whole turny uppy downies when With you've kids. got a fucking baby sleeping yeah. next door. It's next level. Uh, I can't even imagine. Yeah. That's not to say I didn't like it, it's but good. it was definitely like a, a, a different, a, it's an 
audio aesthetic of mm. like this crash, crash, bang, bang kind of yeah, sound. Sharp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Staccato in your ear holes. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was a fun ride. Like I enjoyed that shit. Mm. Um, I, I really liked, I think it was very much embedded in the era. This this was sort of the main thing I liked about it yep. in the rewatch. Like there was lots of things, I guess time capsule, but not time capsule of reality in the 80s, just time capsule of movies in the 80s. So the, the hair obviously, oh. Mel Gibson said, which again because we did, um, what did we do recently? We did, um, Seymour has bought us a plant. <laughs> it's a flower. A flower. We did the Van Damme movie with the mullet recently. Hard target. Yeah, and that's Hard like target. that's quite a bit later. And I remember thinking it seems late to be starting a mullet then. Mm, like this yeah. was mullet time. This was yeah. He, he was a blow, he'd been blow dried before every set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It danced so, in the wind. <laughs> it did. So this was definitely that, that puts it in there. Boobs. Remember when action movies would always often, had some boobs, and often they would open with this kind of scene: boobs, boobs, and woman dies. Yeah, showdown, little Tokyo. Oh yeah, um, others. <laughs> but often it was part of the reason you wanted to watch it as a kid. Bubes. You might see pause, some boobs. pause. You got the boobs. <laughs> you don't see it much these days. Like action movies these days don't really have that dimension to them, if you could call it that. But yeah, like, like a perfect. Well, have you got an example? Of one that doesn't have it. I was going to say Extraction is like probably the most modern. Yeah, okay. I haven't seen it. There's okay, no it's the that. new Netflix. Yeah. Um, Chris Hemsworth. Chris Hemsworth. It's kind of like a John Wick. Mm. I think John Wick seems to have influenced the style these days. Lots of shooty, lots of deathy. Yeah, no booby. No booby. Yeah, so it's, we've gone that way. I think there's also this thing. Bring back the beards. <laughs> I, I don't know if it's like an American thing, like a, a, a cultural um, what's the conservatism where violence is okay but it is not. There's always been this weird double standard I've noticed. Like on Halloween in the US, in Australia, a TV is pretty open. They show boobs and stuff on free-to-wear TV. I remember in the, when I was living in the US and it was Halloween and they were showing like horror movies, they would edit out nudity but they'd keep in like people getting their heads chopped off and shit. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like surely it's not very one European. is worth, yeah, like. Boobs not gonna not gonna incite violence necessarily. Neither would chopping off head, I suppose. But you, you get where I'm going. Well, with that. Normalized, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway, so a different time, a time when <laughs> boobs were offered the opening of the movie, yeah. closely followed by death, um, yeah. and then more boobs. Yeah, ideally. And oh then, no, then buns. Buns. Yeah, yeah. Lots of buns. Man buns. Um, the brutality. So it wasn't gory, but it was brutal. Mm-hmm. Modern movies are more gory. Mm. This movie was more brutal in that, like, there's you know the loud, the loud guns, death everywhere, the headshots, the chest shot, like people are dying left, right, and center. But it's not gory, but it's brutal. Yeah, remember when we did Beverly Hills Cop when his friend dies in the beginning, like it that, hits you, like it was like, oof, that it was, felt, it's it was a visceral scene. Yeah, there's lots of. I felt this has that same DNA to it. Um, yeah, stylistically they were different in that regard, weren't they? Like it was. You were kind of you felt you felt it more. Yeah, yeah. You don't feel any deaths in John Wick. No, it's too many. Yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know if this puts it in the era, but definitely stood out as like that. Doesn't does this make sense? Was just the opening where big bag of coke, hundred grand worth of coke apparently, on the table middle of the day in the open 
in a Christmas tree. They were hidden by the Christmas trees. But the families would be and they're buying Christmas trees. It's uh, like doing it in the middle of a Toys R Us aisle. Well, sometimes that's, you know, <laughs> the most people. Yeah, but as an opening, again, a bit like Beverly Hills Cop. Let me ask you this. Yeah. How many $100,000 cocaine deals have you done, Tristan? That's true. I really have no right to speak on the topic because I've only done a couple. Thank you. <laughs> Why is he doing a drug bust? Isn't he? They're homicide cops, right? Yeah, I don't know. Why is he doing a drug bust? I don't know. But it's a great introduction to the character, I suppose. He was. Uh, 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 We get really good at search for his. And the the juxtaposition of Christmas and drugs. Cocaine. Lovely. Um, the, okay, so this is a big one for me. It was one of those, this is one of those ones that I hope, I'm hoping you agree because it's a little bit obscure. Yeah. But in hindsight, massive. The guy threatened to kill himself by jumping off a building. Yep. This was in lots of things as a kid. Remember when we did Stop All My Mom Will Shoot? That was a big one of them, a big part of that movie. Um, it's a bit like the quicksand thing. You know how when you were a kid you thought quicksand would be a bigger part of your life? Yeah. Like you'd, you'd be forgiven, growing up <laughs> yeah. on 80s movies, you'd be forgiven if most of what cops do is negotiate with people standing on top of buildings because mm-hmm. it was so common. Yeah. There's, yeah, It's not in any movies these days. Well, So, so yeah. I think... I think, and I even googled. I didn't. I didn't copy the list, but I googled it to see how many there were. And there's like, you know, IMDb most popular movies where someone threatens suicide on top of a roof. So it's like a whole thing. What were they? I can't remember. Man on a ledge. <laughs> that was one of them. Um, oh, another one similar to uh, this idea of brutality versus gore. The chick at the beginning. Um, yes, she jumps off. Rachel Huntsacker. Is that who it was? Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. She jumps off the, how many stories is that? A lot of stories. There's plenty of stories. She's quite intact when she lands. Well, yeah, I mean. But this is something that's evolved in movies now. They explode. I've engaged Seymour. Yeah, yeah, you've really asked for it now. <laughs> I've engaged stickles. <laughs> don't eat my top. It's custom. But they don't do that now. If a body falls out of a building now, they explode. Do they? Yeah. The Departed, remember what happens to oh, poor Martin, Martin Sheen? Sheen? You just what see happens a to splash, Mr. Um, Ramon Estevez? Yeah, that's rough. Um, and then ultimately, I think, of course, the old buddy cop genre kind of peaked, or, or maybe just really got solidified here. Yeah, I've got some stuff on that. Yeah, this is back to back buddy buddy cop movies for us. Yeah, it is. We did Men in Black last week. Obviously, a different take on the genre, um, but I thought I'd give us a whistle stop tour of the genre. You know, even we're going back to back, if that's okay. Yeah. So fairly early days here, the genre, as I say, definitely predates this. And it predates Hollywood, in fact. Mm. Back to the Far East. Ooh. Uh, back to the legendary Akira Kurosawa, of course, right? Yeah. Um, and a 1949 film called Stray Dog, which was a, a sort of film noir crime drama. So there's there, there's a rookie cop, Detective Murakami, gets paired with the veteran detective Sarko to infiltrate a illegal arms operation mm. back in 49 that happened and that's well regarded or well, I guess, documented as being the precursor to the buddy cop. This, that was the first sort of yeah. um, odd duo. The detective genre wasn't big in Japan at the time, in Japan, and in turn Kurosawa actually credited the inspiration for that film mm. from an American film at the same time called Naked City. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. He borrowed something, created something that then – has obviously gone on to be, you know, it's one of the kind of most staples and, and consistent genres we've got. Yeah. 
Uh, early versions in the US were In the Heat of the Night and The French Connection. Then 48 Hours came in and yeah. that was probably a little bit more of what we saw here and what we're used to. Um, and then Lethal Weapon was kind of kind of opened the floodgates. Yeah. This was kind of the blueprint for the more modern. This became, yeah. You know, you got Bad Boys, obviously, Men in Black, Rush Hour, Beverly Hills Cop, Seven. Mm. Some people brought a dog into it. You got Turner and Hooch and K9. It's probably similar to like what Die Hard did for action movies. Like there were action movies before it. There was Commando and there were, but they weren't, they hadn't quite like gotten all the way yet. Yeah. They it's like solidified. Yeah, they yeah. were too raw, I guess. Yeah. Or, They're like prototypes. Yeah. And this one sort of gave us a little bit of human stuff. And then obviously yeah. now the buddy cop can be a drama. It can be an action. It can be a comedy. It can be all three. Yeah. Like this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that's that's a mad point because I was I was musing on that myself. Mm-hmm. Um, having having watched a few movies lately, and my uh, I'm a man of leisure these days. I'm not working, and I've watched a lot of movies. And most recently, I watched. Um, you are looking a little tan. Yeah, yeah. I've been uh, stooping. Sit yeah. on my stoop in the sun. Son of a bitch. <laughs> um, me and Seymour. Um. Yeah, one of the movies I watched recently was was Tenet. I'm not going to get into any spoiler territory there, but what I'm going to say about that movie is is pretty consistent with what's in reviews. But something I've also complained about with Nolan generally, in that that movie and a lot of Nolan movies like Inception, the characters just have no humanness to them. Mm. They're just vessels for delivering. Ideas, plot moving devices, and yeah. exposition and explaining extra things that confusing the audience <laughs> about time travel <clears throat> exactly. And, um, it, it really the, the latest one is probably the most extreme version of that. And, um, I was thinking about it a lot. And then we watch this movie and you see the exact opposite, where even just the way you're introduced to the characters, you order you straight away get the context yeah. of like they have lives, this is they their have world. Like Leonardo DiCaprio in Inception, what what does he do outside of going to people's dreams? Like, what does he do for fun? I was thinking this movie is like, what is when they're done with this mission? How's he going to get like like Hans Gruber when he if he did win at the end of Die Hard? <laughs> what was he going to do? Sit on the beach, yeah, go for twenty percent, yeah. Like, but that's not they're not human. I ordered these guys a margarita and my detonators. <laughs> exactly. Um, although Die Hard, not as, that's pretty human, but. Um, yes, I'm with you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Don't so, criticise us, listeners. But one of the things, one of the, the secret weapon, the lethal secret weapon is not lethal at all. I was trying to make a pun work. But the secret weapon in all of this that Shane Black does in a lot of his movies is setting it at Christmas. Mm. So this was set at Christmas. Predator. Um, was it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got a list here. Hang on a sec. Lethal Weapon, The Last Boy Scout, The Long Kiss Goodnight, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Iron Man 3, and even The Nice Guys has some Christmas to it. But all, all those, those movies are set at Christmas. Set at Christmas. So it's a conscious thing he's done. And he says the main thing, actually there's a quote, I'll read it out. So it tends to be a touchstone for me. Christmas represents a little stutter in the march of days, a hush in which we have a chance to assess and retrospect our lives. I also think that Christmas is just a thing of beauty, especially as it applies to places like Los Angeles where it's not so obvious and you have to dig for it like little nuggets. Um, and there's, he's talked about this quite a bit. I'm not going to read out all the quotes. But basically the, 
it heightens every emotion, he says. So like if you're, you know, you see how depressed Mel Gibson is. Yeah. Like he's going to be at a peak peak loneliness at the Christmas at period. Christmas. And you see how lovely Danny Glover's family is. You're going to see that at its peak at, at Christmas. Christmas. Someone might want to jump off a building at Christmas because yeah, they're losing it. Fucking Christmas. So this idea that it heightens everything. But I think also like juxtaposing Christmas and joy and safety with violence and destruction and scariness is like a pretty fun thing to do too. Mm. So I think it works on all these levels. And then even just the aesthetic. Like gremlins. Yeah, yeah, exactly, like gremlins. And then even just the aesthetic of like something that's pretty almost noiry cop stuff but with like the neon pretty lights of Christmas behind it. It just looks cool. <laughs> that's yeah, part of it too. It does too. look cool. It does look cool. Um, and actually there's a mad video on that by Patrick H. Willems where he, he goes much deeper than that. But um, someone we want to get on the show too. So if, if you know him or if you're listening, let us know. Um, yeah, he's, he's done all these Christmas movies. And I know what you're thinking. Everyone says Die Hard is one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time, right? That wasn't written by, by Shane Black, but it was produced by Joel Silver immediately after Lethal Weapon. And it was because of Lethal Weapon that Joel Silver decided... Let's set this at Christmas. Ah, there you go. Wow. And little Easter egg there too. The, yeah, the name, the name Die Hard came from Shane Black as well because that was his initial working title for The Last Boy Scout. Oh. And um, Joel wow. Silver said, that name wow. sounds pretty good. I'd like to use that. Thank you. No credit. No credit. But <laughs> <laughs> um, you can stay in Hollywood. Yeah. So that's pretty cool. You and, just dropped a lot of knowledge just now. Yeah, right? That was a good little tangent I found in my researches. And just to round out that point, because my my compare this movie and everything we just said to something like Tenet or Inception, and I, I'm not shitting all over Nolan, I know I do sometimes, but I think other movies of his don't do this. Like Interstellar, you get human. Batman, you get human. Just in some of the other ones you don't. But um, Shane Black talks about modern action movies and what the issue is, and it's exactly this. And I, I think what happens with action movies nowadays, especially these Bruckheimer films like Armageddon or uh, National Spirit, wherever it is, I have treasure. <laughs> <laughs> well, American Spirit is the cigarettes. Um, they're just one loud shout. Starts loud, stays loud, ends loud. Just. <laughs> slow it down, tone it up and down. You know, it's like I'll never forget Danny Arnold talking about a TV show with he had made where they charted the laughs because he was a studio audience. We were the first to do that. It was like ha 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 went down ha went down down. And the studio looked at it and they said, "These are the spikes. These are the high points. Yeah, those are big laughs." But well, we don't like the middle part. Get rid of the middle. Just have it all up here. And they didn't realize it was set up punchline, set up punchline. They just wanted. To Punchline, punchline, punchline. They, and that's the same thing these movies do. They try to, they forget that there's a story. They just want to give you climax, climax, climax all the way through. And the point is that if they would stop, I could save them so much money. That's, it's, it's clever, right? Using the analogy of a joke. Like you can't just have punchline, punchline, punchline. Mm. You need set up. You know, like those hilarious jokes that fucking Harrison Ford was telling when we played those clips yeah. on, um, it's all set up. That joke's not funny if you told it in two seconds. Like it's it's all yeah, you can't just have punchline, 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 well, climax, climax. You got to have a bit of work before you get your reward. Yeah, and I was thinking because we were talking just yesterday about the new Men in not Men in Black, the new Bad Boys movie. Because you just watched it, 
And I was saying, I, I, I haven't it. felt yeah. any urge to watch it. And I think I haven't felt any urge to watch it because I can kind of, oh, yeah, I know what it's going to be. Just action, action, action. And it just becomes wallpaper at that point. There's no like humanness to it. Maybe that one is different, I don't know. But just the fact that I have that perception now of a lot of movies. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 What's that? It's Bad Boys. That? Yeah. Is it? Yes. <laughs> but we'll watch it. We should do Bad Boys soon, actually. Oh, we just did Will Smith for the first time. Let's right, space him out. Yeah, we can do him again. Oh, hey, we've just made a few couple of comparisons to Die Hard. Yeah. Did you come across the uh, Rig, the Riggs-McLean interface? Oh, because they said um, Bruce Willis might have played Riggs. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently he was. I wasn't sure how real that was. But well, yeah. Apparently Gibson was going to play McLean. Apparently they both. Oh, both both. They were both in. in ah. like, and they both both. Apparently the actors were like, no, I want this role. Because in Loaded Weapon there's a nod to it. Yeah, he was. Actually, that's what I was going to say in the upfront is Loaded Weapon was a bigger movie for me than Lethal Weapon. Yeah, right. I don't think I ever knew what it was parodying. <laughs> <laughs> it just came out at the right time, I think. Yeah, still loved it. Yeah. Yeah, because Bruce Willis has a cameo in that, but I yeah. think has a Riggs type. It's, that's it. They're like, yeah, in the like, caravan. They're like wrong movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah. Fuck so that, that, was, that was apparently a legitimate um, thing. Those guys were very close to being in the other opposite movie. That's mad. That's mad. Um, oh, yeah. So I noticed this in the last scene and fucking Foxtel, man. I had to watch it on my phone through the Apple TV and if I just wanted to rewind a little yeah, bit. I know that. Oh. Yeah. So it took yeah. me about 30 minutes to get this right. But the last scene, you hear Mel Gibson slipping into Aussie accent. Did you notice that? When he comes to dinner. Yeah. When he, when he, well, eventually he does. But when he's at the door and they're talking or whatever. I found that a couple of times. Well, I just... If I watched it again now, I'd probably pick it up more. But I definitely noticed it in that scene. I've got a clip here. Unfortunately, it cuts off the very first part where he opens the door and goes, hi. He <laughs> fully <he> says hi. <laughs> He's got it because he does have a pretty thick Aussie accent. Yeah. Oh, God, hi. not every right. word, but. Um, I'm, I'm going to be all right. Oh, good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I'm good, yeah. Um, give this to your dad, okay? Uh, it's a present for him. Tell him I won't be needing it anymore. You having a nice Christmas, though, okay? Okay, you too. Bye. 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 Hey, Riggs! <laughs> Riggs! <laughs> After all we've been through, if you think I'm gonna eat the world's lousiest Christmas turkey by myself, you're crazy. I'll tell you a little secret. secret. What? I'm not crazy. I know. Oh, good. Let's eat. Hey, you know something? Well, I, I think your daughter kind of likes me. If you touch it, I'll kill you. <laughs> You'll try it. Hey, you mind if I bring a friend? Come on, you bring a friend. Hey, you mind if I bring a friend? <laughs> yeah. What a lovely, uh, that was nice. What a nice moment. So the, Mel Gibson being Australian was a... a a constant, not tension point, but it was complicated when I was a kid because he was our only guy at that point. Mm. Now we've got so many Aussies in Hollywood, yeah. you kind of forget that he's one of them. But I was always so gutted that he had an American accent most of the time I knew him at Interesting. Least. Yeah, and I was like, and I remember vividly because I was, you know, 
I was angry about it. Mm. <laughs> I remember seeing something on TV and it's an American show and they go, yeah, Mel, Mel Gibson is Australian but he doesn't sound Australian. They go, yeah, well, actually he was born in New York. Yeah, I didn't realise that he came here when he was like 12. Yeah, well, at the time I didn't know he was there till he was 12 and I was like, that doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. You can still, anyway. So he, he was there till he was 12. So I guess he, where I've come to land on it is probably just wherever he spends his most time he probably just starts to. Because he would have had a thick American accent when he moved to Australia then. Yeah. But then he had an Aussie accent at this time in real life. Yeah. Because he was living in Australia. And now he's full American. But what I found was, because after that I was looking up Mel Gibson interviews because I assumed he was already speaking full American at this point because that's just how I knew him. And um, and I found, yeah, he had thick Aussie accent in the interviews yeah. for this movie. But then what I found was you can actually use the press tours for each Lethal Weapon movie to track the evolution of his accent. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Lethal Weapon 1, very Aussie. Mel, I was reading about you in GQ magazine. I'm sure you've heard a lot of people reading about you. But when you're preparing for an interview, and the, one of the first things you read is, Mel Gibson is one tricky, complicated guy that scares you to death. I think you scared the writer of that uh, article. I did. did. Yeah, I think I, you did. I didn't mean to. I liked her. I thought she was great. Do you think you intimidate some people, though, because you, are, uh, you do look intense on camera a lot? In the, in the roles you Man, play. And he looks fucking oh, I crazy. I think perhaps physically, but I think once you start to jaw with me a bit, I don't, I don't think I'm, I don't, certainly don't try to intimidate. But you're really kind of an Australian farmer with a house full of kids, right? Basically. <laughs> Sounds pretty droll, doesn't it? No, it's great. So, yeah, not the most comfortable interview. And actually mm. they're all kind of like that. I've noticed he's not great at being interviewed. He seems like he's about to unleash. He always seems like he's on the cusp of going crazy. Yeah. He's, he's, I find him a little unsettling. Yeah. But anyway, that's very Aussie. That's Lethal Weapon 1, so that's 1987. Lethal Weapon 2, I believe, is 1989. And you start to get a bit of a tinge. This is tinge time. Well, Mel, we are here again. Yep. Lethal Weapon 1, Lethal Weapon 2, maybe Lethal Weapon 3, 4, or not. I, I don't know. It's, that's a hard one. i got to take a rest. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, no wonder this one seems to me that it has much more action and much more arduous action. Am I right? It, it appears to have that. Uh, uh, it was a lot easier making. Really? For mm. you? Yeah. In what way? Uh, there was an ease attached to it, I think, because we, were, uh, we got broken in on the first one and, and uh, there was a lot of freedom and relaxation uh, that went along with the uh, with the package. Slight evolution in the accent. It remains to be batshit boring. Lethal Weapon uh-huh. 3, we're almost at full American here. Lethal Weapon 3. The thought that he can kind of like, he becomes more adjusted and everything, but <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty much can always right? rise to the occasion of insanity when when called upon. That's the voice I know. Yeah, that's that's. His riches, full form. So it's interesting because that's a space of five, five years. The 1992, I think, was Lethal Weapon 3. I lived in New York for five years. Mm-hmm. So did my wife. Mm-hmm. We don't sound like that. No. <laughs> I think the closest I got was like hitting my R's a bit harder. Like yeah. saying weird so people understood me. That's about it. But I'm not an actor. My job didn't require yeah, me to put you, on an accent all day. Nor did I spend 12 years star. of my childhood in America. So yeah, maybe I started. I started writing that part of my notes angrily. <laughs> I didn't get an accent. I lived there. <laughs> you didn't get an accent. I lived there. And then as I read more, I was like, okay, it sounds kind of fair enough. Um, and actually, in, even in more recent interviews, you kind of hear a little bit of Aussiness come through here and there. 
little bit. But um, that's kind of all I got on Mel. I wasn't planning on getting into the dark years. I'm sure we'll cover that at another yeah. point. Yeah. yeah I'd say he's he was 30 when this film was made. So this is the thing. This is crazy. So he's playing a 38-year-old. Yeah. He's 30 or 31, 30. Uh, yeah. 30. He's young. He kind of doesn't look that young. No. He's aged badly but well. Like he's he looks like leathery and stuff but it kind of suits him as a look. <laughs> yeah. He, I mean he looks like a rich older guy. Yeah. And then Danny Glover, similar, they're both playing older. Danny Glover was only 41. He was 40, yeah. What is that's nearly my age. Yeah, because as I was watching it, before he even said his age, I was just, it's something I do sometimes, ever since I found out Bruce Willis was 34 in, in um, Die Hard, I just look up their ages just yeah, to see same. if they're Because I want them to be older than me. I was like 41 and then like in the next scene they I, said it's his 50th birthday I read or 40, so, you know, whatever. Well, that was just my math. So I, that, could was, be <laughs> um, I was like, what? That's pretty, I'm 38 yeah. and a half. Yeah. I'm basically... Metoff's age. <laughs> yeah. You're too old for this shit, I'm man. too old for this shit. Wow, I'm almost too old for this shit. Riggs is a little bit too old to be flirting with his daughter, I would say. Fuck yeah. If he's 38, she's, what, 17, 16? Yeah. I get it. He's just like, please being not polite to her, but yeah, I would have been doing this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, man. Exactly. But she is smoking weed in the house. Was she? Yeah, that was what she was grounded for. Oh, oh that's right. It's, it's not like it's cocaine. Yeah. I was yeah. like, whoa. Yeah. I don't remember that. Well, that is kind of progressive. And, yeah, we touched on it before, but just to, just to hit that point a bit harder, I think one of the things that has aged really nicely with this movie is what we are saying before, the fact that this, these characters weren't written – well, as white or black, really. I mean, white producers reading the script would just imagine them as white, but they weren't explicitly white. Or, yeah. yeah, they were yeah. just humans. Yeah, and so the fact that they just cast good actors, one happened to be black, and the fact that not the movies can't be about race. It's good to have movies about race too, but the fact that race wasn't a thing for this mm. it was just there's two guys. Just and two you guys. You didn't have to go down all those tropes of like. It was nice, and man. Aside from that, I just love his family. Those families, yeah. those family dinner scenes are so wholesome. Yeah, obviously minus the flirting. Well, exactly. So you got you got good representation there of just a happy African American family where it's not a huge. It's not like it, there's no stereotypes there at all. Yeah, it's just just a lovely family. Yeah, yeah, it's nice. Three great kids. Yeah, great advertisement for three kids. Yeah, two of them. Two point four children. Two of them ganging up on the older one. I yeah, did, beatboxing did, at the dinner table. Beatboxing at the dinner table, it felt familiar. Yeah. The one thing that didn't feel familiar was Murtoff's morning bath routine. Yeah, Harold wouldn't shut up about that. I was like, it's I'm very, trying to watch it. I get it, it's weird. <laughs> it's very luxe, very indulgent. The only other movie where I can remember When his morning, whole family comes in too. Well, yeah, that's. I guess it's his birthday. That's, I guess yeah. you crashed the, the morning bath, Yeah, I assume. Um, but a morning bath, there's urgency in the morning. This, you can't unwind with a bath oh, in the morning. It's fascinating, <laughs> isn't it? The only other movie I can remember a morning bath is Coming to America. That's different. Exactly. It's very different. Prince of Zamunda. <laughs> yeah. And he gets his… The royal penis. The royal penis. Needs to get cleaned. The Murtoff penis is clean, your highness. <laughs> I don't know, a morning bath, it's so indulgent. Yeah. Have you ever had a morning bath? I don't fit in baths. I haven't had a bath in years. I think good. if we ever get a if we're traveling and there's a hotel bath, I'll take a bath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then once I'm in, I don't really know what to do. I think you're meant to relax. I can't. 
<laughs> Do you know what they are good for? What? Um, for the DOMS. Ah. Delayed onset muscle soreness. Ah, uh, if you yeah. have a big workout a and nice you're bath, sore. Like well, Universal well, Soldier? Ice. <laughs> Get me ice. Uh, well, ice, yes. Um, or just a hot bath with Epsom salts. Ah, right. Epsom salts. Give it a try. Give it a try. All right. Saxa salt work just as good? No. Oh. No, it will not. Paprika? Probably. Um, although in saying that, while that is age lovely and, uh, I, you know, I understand it's done for the purposes of banter and, and, and a bonding moment, constantly ripping on your wife's cooking, like, mate, maybe you should cook your own fucking dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. Yeah. Because she seems like a pretty, well, we get to know her. I feel You like, believe this woman? She can't cook for shit. Like it's yeah, so, yeah. it seems, everything's so, I, mean, I get it's just jokes. It's like lighthearted. Yeah. But she's but a bit, still. <laughs> she also, I mean, it's later in the series. She's like the breadwinner of the house. So she's like, well, I earn all the fucking money. Really? Why don't you pick up a pan? Well, that's okay. So that makes it even fucking, oh, she yeah. does say that later? No, oh. I can't remember if she does. But she's a bit of a ball. Like she's like a not a ball breaker. She's like a an ass kicker. Yeah. So later in the see in this later films, and we'll probably cover them at some point. Yeah. But he seems to have all this money, and Riggs is like, "Man, are you?" Oh. Thinks he's doing something dodgy because he's got this beautiful oh, boat. He's got right. like a you know three hundred thousand dollar boat or whatever. Well, then yeah. Why the fuck? Are you yeah. Well, I guess that happened late. Maybe it happens later. But she um she is a author. Right. She writes romance, super like Mills and Boone level romance novels. Ooh la la. But she's just got a um, a pseudonym that she, like a, a pen name. Mad. I want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so many things. Wow. Hey, do you know what we need to talk about here? Mm. This is, you know, we're in sort of lap packy territory. Um, yep. And there is some really good martial arts in this movie. Ah, uh, yeah. Um, so I wanted one to that, ask you about that. Yeah. One that really stuck out for me was... That final sort of fight scene uh, between Riggs and Mr. Joshua on the lawn. Yeah. Which is cool, right? They sort of got him. He's like, no, nah, no, nah, let's. Well, and at first I thought shot it was. The title. Yeah, that was cool. Great. And it also made me think, oh, you could have had, you could have had Patrick Swayze as Riggs potentially. I think. It he, made me think yeah, that. I think his name was in the mix. Yeah, because he's got the hair and he's got the kicks. He's got the kicks. He's um, definitely got a bit more but background. I, at first when that scene started, uh, uh, it was a roller coaster. I was like, oh, okay, here we go. But then the first bit of fighting, it was all shaky camera and you couldn't see what was happening. Yeah. I was like, oh, they're masking bad fighting. Yeah. But then it got better. It did get better. And there was a few techniques in there that weren't common in the 80s um, yeah. in these sort of films, primarily in the form of some some Brazilian jiu-jitsu, BJJ, that jumped out at me. Now, we've probably touched on it before. For those that aren't uh, aficionados or don't have an interest in this sort of thing as much, uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu is a style that sort of came to global, you know, popularity or interest through MMA, through the UFC. Yeah. So UFC won the very first the very first mixed martial art tournament uh, was won by a guy called Hoist Gracie, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, and he was much smaller than a lot of the uh, guys he fought. Oh. And they were all stand-up guys and he went to the ground and they, no one knew how to do what he did and he wrapped them up and like pretzels and choked them all out and won. Mad. So the Gracies are kind of like the royal family of, of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. There's a bunch of them. Mm. It's quite a quite a few of them, and they're pretty special. There, as I say, they're the royal family of it all. So it turns out, in terms of making this movie, in, in order to show what a serious badass, because you know the whole thing with Riggs is he's ex Green Beret, yeah, he's like super duper sniper, yeah, he's like a, a special 
A lethal weapon. A lethal weapon. Is he the titular lethal weapon? I I assume so. I guess they say it, kind of. He is, yeah. He's a real lethal weapon type. I didn't use those words. Um, (laughs) So Donna believed that he had to showcase styles and techniques that people just hadn't seen on screen before. Yeah. Um, So they they settled on something called Jailhouse Rock, which I Yeah, I read that too. It was prison fighting, basically. Yeah. I don't know anything about it. I had a quick look up. For it, but I didn't come across much. But it's a, yeah, it's a, something invented in the U.S. prison system, and capoeira, which as you know is the flashy dance um, Brazilian style. Eddie Gordo. Eddie Gordo, yeah. From uh, Tekken Three. Yeah, let's roll in and yeah, smash all the buttons. Yeah, it works. <laughs> uh, fortunately, I wanted to do capoeira so bad after well, Tekken Three. <laughs> who didn't? I'm glad they they were light touch on that in the film, just because it's. Unless yeah. you can do that, it's not going to look good. It, it looks you look like a until drunk you're Eddie Gordo. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, trust me. <laughs> There's an um, awkward stage that is most of it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so the actors, particularly Boosie and and Gibson, did a whole bunch of training on this each. Yeah. And it made for, oh, I thought it was a really slick final fight. It has held up. So the sequence that caught my eye at the end of the film, fight goes to ground, Riggs sort of uh, spots a loose arm and goes to put on an armbar. Yeah. Um, rolls back with the armbar. Joshua kind of muscles out, muscles out of it, gets in top position and Riggs is kind of at the bottom yeah. uh, in guard as it's called and then pops on what's what's uh, a really common sort of basic BJJ move uh, known as a triangle oh, where yeah. you basically form a triangle with your legs around the the arm and neck of your opponent in that, in that position. Yeah. So he catches him in that. Boom. He's got himself a choke out, baby. Now in Man. modern days, that's like a it doesn't happen that much anymore because it's quite a well known move. So people so people have things. people get out of it. People know how to defend it and spot it coming. But this is 1987, baby. Yeah, he ain't seen no triangle. Yeah, and he pops that on. And it was raining. And it was raining. Where that was it, pretty cool. Yeah. And he's good at it. I think he like he it looked good, man. I was. It, yeah, it, did it look has good. held up. I think that was the part. Also, because yeah, at some point he's. Showing off the abby dabbies and stuff and yeah. such in the rain, and that's when I was like, "Oh yeah, Swayze could have done this." They got that yeah, similar yeah, body type, yeah, 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 massive hair, very lean, <laughs> and like lean fit, yeah, skinny lean, fit. yeah, the skinny fit, yeah. But it was it was good, man. I I, I think it like they it looked really good. Mm. Um, nineteen eighty seven, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, as I say, was didn't really hit mainstream. And I think the first UFC was like ninety three, ninety yeah, three ninety four after inspired by Kumite. <laughs> probably, <laughs> it probably. Was, it's interesting because it's not like there was martial arts throughout it, really, right? Like there wasn't heaps. Sparing, yeah, sparing. So it was kind of cool that the the climax of an action movie was just hand to hand stuff. Yeah, because it was in a movie where there's explosions and all kinds of shit. Yeah, yeah it's kind of nice. Like, and they did they'd done so much training for that scene, for that one scene, really. Yeah. So I was, I was into it, man. I respect respect yeah, cool. the vision of the director to go. Outfield and find some some things that you know hadn't been done before on film, and the respect yeah. to the actors who put the time in to make it look the way it did. It's yeah, um, hats off. Yeah. The other thing um, I wanted to touch on was the music. Yeah. Um, so there's some pretty iconic stuff in here. Mm. So I had never noticed before. Like, there's a sax and a guitar that are pretty iconic in this. Yeah. The saxophone is played by a guy called David Sanborn, who is apparently like the Eric Clapton of sax. He's right. won a bunch of Grammys, I think. Ponytail? 
I would only assume so. Has to have a ponytail. He probably invented that look. Yeah. And the guitar is played by a real Eric Clapton type. Eric Clapton? Eric Clapton. Is it? Yeah. So it's like proper high-level. That's mad. Guys here. Were you implying that each one is for the different characters? Yeah, the sax is Murtoff's and the guitar is Riggs's. So whenever they have their little moments on scene, like in the bathtub. Yeah. That's mad. That was the sax. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. It is cool. So this we don't, is all, we don't talk about music enough generally. I don't on think this podcast. so. Well, this is a good place to sort of have yeah. it because the the chap um, who's pulled all this together is the great and powerful Michael Kamen. We've covered his works before in Roadhouse. Michael Kane. Michael Kane. Michael Kamen. <laughs> oh. Not English. Erica. I swore to protect you. Well, no one protected him because he dead. <laughs> oh shit. Uh, which is sad. So oh, he died yeah. at the age of 55, but Oof. man, wow, what a life. So the candle uh, that burns twice as bright burns half as long. Man, and absolutely he did. So he, yeah, he did Roadhouse and Die Hard that we've covered before. Oh, yeah. Another Joel Silver picture of Roadhouse as well. Yeah, so he must have been, had it in there. So he'd done all That's these film posse. scores. He, he started off late 70s, I think he did ballets or something. Right. Um, then he did a lot of work with Pink Floyd. How's this for a bit of a, a sort of uh, resume of collabs? Mm. Uh, Bob Dylan, Eric Clapton, Queen, David Bowie, Tom Petty, Metallica. That's like Fuck. scratching the surface. Um, did a bunch with Brian Adams. So everything I did for you and all for ones so are Brian oh, Adams big for the yeah. movies. Uh, sadly died at 55 after a heart attack. He had uh, really bad, I think really bad. Um, multiple sclerosis for about seven years. But, wow, man, what a body of work. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he'll come up again um, for our films, but wow. Wow. Yeah. Wow. 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 Um, he even did that U2 uh, Pavarotti collab. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I was going to get into the legacy of this movie, but we've got three other Lethal Weapon movies to cover, so maybe it's not an important point. Maybe we should just get into the voiding. Yeah, because I got some Danny Glover stuff, but I think oh, oh, yeah. I'll save it. I was thinking that as I was making my notes too. I'm like, he's a bit of a blind spot for me. I want to learn more about Danny Glover. I love him. He's in lots of stuff post this as well. Like he's in Predator 2, he's in yeah. Royal Tenenbaums, he's in lots of shit I love, but I don't know much about him at all. Um, so Come, maybe we'll, we'll do, save that we'll for save the it, sequel. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, let's get into verdict then. I don't know what to say, really. I don't remember asking you a goddamn thing. I am the law. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. I want to have them answered immediately. You can't handle the truth. What are you waiting for? Ah! Say what again? Say what again? I dare you. Nothing further. Your Honor. And that's all I have to say about that. Um, I do have an overall thought, Greg. Pitch it, not pitch it, paint it. So does, does Lethal Weapon hold up in 2020? I say yes, it does. Lethal Weapon is worth a 2020 rewatch for two main reasons. The first, looking at 80s and – Seymour's found a squeaky toy just <laughs> at the right time. When looking at 80s and 90s cinema overall, this has to be a prescribed text because it represents not only the ascension of – Two action heavyweights in Shane Black and Joel Silver, a partnership that would echo through the ages. Lowenstein. <laughs> but it also solidified the template for the buddy cop, buddy cop genre. And second, the time capsule, like I said. There's so much in there. There's it a delightful a little capturing of 
Um, a, a time <laughs> when you would open movies with some boobs and some falling from buildings oh, and I can f- all those kinds of things. I can feel the cassette, the thick cassette case opening now. You know, I, and I don't mean this in a dumb hipster way, but there's some movies I think I do want to watch on VHS. Yeah. There's, there's an aesthetic that kind of works. Yeah. I think that's, that, that would be the ideal way to watch it. But all of this beautiful delight 80s cops action aesthetic wrapped up in a little two-hour package, three and a half stars. Nice. Well said. I'll give it slightly more. Yeah. Probably fair pumped enough. up by my nostalgic uh, commitment. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, now we're getting into a couple of our little patented tests here. Did Simpsons do it? Almost. You find the Mendoza. Yeah, Mendoza. Get my baby with tat. <laughs> damn, damn, damn. Yeah, the two days to retirement is kind of... Yeah. Hey, McBain, you keep eating them hot links, you're never going to make it to a pension. Come on, live a little, Scoy. No, thank you. Got me a future, partner. I'm two days away from retirement. My daughter's graduating from college. Little Susie's going up. And as soon as we nail Mendoza, my old lady and I are going to sail around the world like we always wanted. We just christened a book. Yes, sir. Everything's going to be just perfect. Damn, damn, damn. Yes? I'm not going to make it. Oh, stop talking crazy. No, 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 no. Just do one thing for me. Get Mendoza. One of the better Simpsons references we've managed to, you know, mm. one, one of those tests we brought in because we thought it'd be a great excuse to have some Simpsons chat. Mm-hmm. Often disappoints. Yeah, generally. Generally, that's a good one. Um, what else? Porn parody. Not that I could find. I found a porn star oh, yeah. called Letha Weapons. Oh, that's pretty good. She's specialises in the big bust category. <laughs> Letha Weapons. Letha Weapons. She could be a Bond, Bond villain, Bond girl. She could be. <laughs> A lot of vagina. <laughs> um, uh, Bechdel tests, certainly not. Um, certainly not. Certainly not. I mean, they've got we'll a family there. Three. Yeah, once, yeah, exactly. And then not. <laughs> Still not, but closer. FX test, fuck yeah. Explosions, oh, fuck yeah. Recast is, I didn't do, because I did a TV show. I was going to talk a bit about that, but I, it's not really about it at the time. But Damon Wayans. Some other guy that got fired and then ended up being Sean William Scott for the final season. Oh. That's not bad. Yeah. I'm willing to that. Not bad. I had a bit of a play really, around. They're not really tier one, but it's not bad. It's not bad. I I did see, uh, maybe I was fresh off Bad Boys, but the irony is that Will oh, Smith yeah. could play. Yeah, he really could now. The older guy now. Yeah. Um, I thought your boy Shia LaBeouf could be interesting for Riggs. Oh, yeah. Greg, that's good. Or You've you, done it. You could even have a little reverse racy issue where you go Donald Glover for Riggs mm-hmm. uh, and Adam Sandler for Murtaugh. Yeah, I like that. I like LaBeouf to unleash his crazy a little. It's, mm. That's good. Yeah. 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 I like it. Nicely done. I, did you do six stories? I didn't do six stories. Danny Glover's in Predator 2. Oh, that's close enough. He's probably working out something <laughs> there. <laughs> MVP? 
Oh, I don't know, man. Maybe Mel. Although Mel annoyed me a bit in this. Like when he goes crazy, he goes, come on, come on, come on. The Three Stooges Yeah, but he carried that the whole movie. Yeah. Come on. Why does he do that? He did it like he did the Stooges bit in the opening scene. Yeah. But then he, that actually, he did that the whole movie. Because I think he's good. But then even since talking about it with you just now, because I did have it in my notes, is he the titular lethal weapon? If he is, I think he needs to dial it up even more because this doesn't seem to be enough of a loose cannon in some ways. Oh, but he's so deadly. Like he tells those, you need the shooting in the range and he yeah. shoots a smiley face, Tristan. What more do you want? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. For me, he hits the right notes. Like you know how. As being a, I yeah, think sorry, he's a legendary, yeah. this character is a legendary. Maybe maybe it's Swayze. Swayze could have done it better. Like Roadhouse, he's a lethal weapon in Roadhouse. Riggs would kill Dalton though. Why? Because he he can parry those pirouettes. (laughs) (laughs) It's more of a dancer. They're the worst kicks ever. Yeah. (laughs) But but yeah. But the 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 legend around him and the oh yeah yeah yeah. Um, But that's not. That's just a side note. I think Mel Gibson was good. I think Danny Glover was really good too. I kind of gave mm. him Tizies. Tizies, yeah, that's yeah. cool. A low, low key VP. I did. I never remember to do this until at this moment. It's still. <laughs> oh, I can answer it for you. Okay. It's it's still the daughter. <laughs> uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. She's great. Yeah. She's a ray of sunshine. Yeah. Yeah. She is. Took me back. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, what are we doing next week? I never know. <laughs> Me too. This batch <laughs> where we've got to organise our Scarface week for our special guest. Oh, yeah, we do. Um, next week we are doing... Sensodyne. <gasps> Crocodile Dundee. Oh. Our second Australian film. Stone the... Looking forward to that one. Stone the Flame and Crows. Stone the Flame and Crows. And, hey, we've got that. a few new listeners lately, so if you're one of those new listeners... Welcome to the show. Welcome, friends. Great to have you. New ya. friends. New friends. Um, hope you're enjoying it. If you're not already, you can follow us at Instagram. Lots more content there. Good mm-hmm. chat there. Mm-hmm. Also on the Facebook. Oh, Seymour just bit me. Oh, and um, leave us a review if you can yeah, on the Apple help. Podcast. Thank you and for our review leavers. Yeah, thank you to the review we leavers. We respect and appreciate you. We'll do some shout outs soon. It's not, it's not the easy. It's a bit of a pain in the ass to leave reviews. I don't leave a it lot is. of reviews in the review world. Yeah. So, so thank you. We so appreciate, I appreciate it. Them. Yeah. But otherwise, uh, we'll see you next week. See you next week for some more Australiana. Woo!